Well, our text for today is from our gospel reading. It is what we refer to as the Magnificat, or Mary's song of praise. That's one of the things that I love most about this time of the year and the Christmas season is all the wonderful songs that we get to sing. All of the even secular Christmas songs that we get to sing like Jingle Bells and Santa Claus is Coming to Town and of course Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Yes, my daughter says. Forgive me for anyone who falls into that demographic of Grandma. Of course, the sacred songs that we're enjoying even this morning, and will we will on Christmas Eve, hark the herald angels sing, and joy to the world in silent night, and the joy that that brings to sing these songs. And that's what we see here in Mary, as she is bursting into this song of praise. We see the rejoicing, we see great joy. Remember, Mary is probably around 13 years old. Can you see her just singing and rejoicing? She's got this deeper joy within her, a peace and a contentedness within her which really is astonishing. As we've been talking about, really, the the story of Mary over the last several weeks during Advent, as we've been studying Luke chapter 1 together, again, Mary is 13 years old, and she is going to have a child. And no doubt the community in which she lived and the town of Nazareth would have shunned her and shamed her. No doubt there was any number of members of her own family who would have shunned her and shamed her. We know from Matthew's gospel that Joseph himself was seeking to, quote, quietly divorce her. Not to mention whatever the dangers were of childbirth in the first century AD. Not to mention that an angel named Gabriel had come to her and said, by the way, the child that you're going to bear is going to be called, quote, the son of the most high. And that this was the long-awaited Messiah and Christ, no pressure, Mary. Can you imagine at 13 years of age, the worries, the fears, the anxieties, the sadness, and yet here is Mary, and she's rejoicing, and she's singing, and there is a joy, there is a peace within her. Where did that come from? How is that possible for her? How can it be possible for us? Well, Mary actually tells us in the very first verse of the Magnificat, of her song of praise. It says in verse 47, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. That is a rather strange way of saying it. My soul magnifies the Lord. She's saying my soul is making bigger the Lord. 
I'm within the depths of my spirit and my psychology, within my soul. I'm magnifying, making bigger the Lord. See, my soul so often magnifies my worries. My soul magnifies, makes bigger all the things that I don't have. It magnifies all of the things on my list of complaints or problems. You wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, my soul is magnifying all sorts of worries and fears. Mary here is intentionally, she says, my soul magnifies, it's making bigger the Lord. And we see how truly, radically, God-focused and God-centered she is. This isn't just the power of positive thinking. It's not just the power of positive thinking that's going on here. This is completely redirecting, recentering, reorientating her life on the things of God and on God himself. And as God becomes magnified, as God becomes so much bigger for her, therefore all of those worries and fears and her concerns, which were real, become so much smaller. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She is focused on God. And here in the nine verses of the Magnificat, there are any number of things that she's gazing upon and things that she's rejoicing about in God, let's look at just three of them. First of all, that God is a God who sees, who looks and sees. Says that, in verse 48, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. What is Mary saying? He's saying, God sees me. God knows me. And despite the fact that he knows everything about me, despite the fact that he knows even the worst things about me, he loves me. I'm not alone in this world. I'm not alone in this universe. There is a God and he sees me and he knows me and he knows exactly what I'm going through right now. And almost every occasion where in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, in the life of Christ, where we see God or we see Christ who sees someone, it's almost always, always connected to his compassion. To his compassion. There is a wonderful story just a few chapters beyond this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 where we see Jesus now in his earthly ministry. And he's in a town called Nain. And it says here that there's a great crowd that went with him. If you can imagine thousands of people surrounding Christ as he's walking. And he's approaching the gates of the city of Nain. 
And at the same time, there is a funeral procession, and it says of that that there was a considerable crowd from the town that was in this funeral procession, and there was a woman there who was a widow, and she's just lost her son. And though there is this huge crowd around her and a huge crowd around Jesus, it says in verse 13 that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. I love this. Thousands of people around Christ. Who knows how many people around her? Chaos, craziness. And there our Lord looks and he sees and he sees her grief and her weeping and he sees her and he is filled with compassion for her. Do not weep. And then he actually raises her son from the dead and gives her son back to him, back to her. And maybe sometimes you feel like no one sees you or no one looks at you or no one understands you or you're, you know, God, you know, I'm throwing up my prayers, but there's billions of people in this world. Are you really there? Are you really listening? Can you really see me? And the answer throughout Scripture is yes. He sees you, he knows you, and he has such compassion for you. And this word compassion in the Greek, let's talk a little Greek. It is one of my favorite Greek words. Some of you will go, oh, I, you might, this one might sound familiar to you. The word for compassion is the Greek word splognitsomai. Splognitsomai. You want to say it? I can tell by the look on your face. Splognitsomai. Okay, I'm, don't jump ahead of me. Oh, you weren't going to say glory be to God during the gospel reading, but now you're stepping all over this moment in my sermon. I'll say it, and then you say it after me. I'll go like this, okay? Splognitsomai. Splognitsomai. You can feel that in your gut when you say it. Splognitsomai. And the reason why you can feel it in your gut is because that's literally what the word means. It means from the bowels, from the intestines, from the gut. We see into the heart of God as he sees this woman, as he sees you, as he sees Mary in her humble estate, and from the gut, an intense, powerful, overriding, passionate emotion for you, for us. Because he is a God, number one, who sees, but because he has that splognitsomai from the gut, powerful emotion, he's then secondly, we see here, secondly, a God who acts, a God who does. Mary goes on in her joyful song and says, for he who is mighty has done great things 
for me. He who is so mighty has done great things, and maybe she says, for me? And there, of course, she's speaking about that God has chosen her to bear the Christ, to bear the Messiah, the very Son of God. And you know, Mary, not even Mary at this moment, of course, understood the mighty things that God would do, the great things that God would do. The one that she describes as mighty would be nailed to a cross and become so weak. The one that she says, holy is his name. Holy and righteous on the cross, covered in your sin and mine, becomes a curse. The one who is the author of all of life, the creator of all of life, suffers death. He looked upon our humble estate as poor, miserable sinners, and he took our place. He took your place. It's a great exchange. Because we can hear these words of Mary, oh, the, the one who is mighty has done great things for me. And we say, boy, it'd be nice if God would do some great things for me. Oh, he has. He has done such great things for you. He's conquered death for you and opened up the way of everlasting life. He's a God who sees, he's a God who acts, who does. And Mary, in verses 51, 52, and 53, goes on to talk about all these different things that, that the Messiah, that, that God, that Christ does. It says, and this is in the past tense, it says, he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate, he has filled the hungry with good things, that is physical hunger, but spiritual hunger, he has done, the, done these things, and yet most of the things she is describing are things that will occur in the future. things we haven't even seen yet at the return of Christ. And yet Mary is speaking of these things in the past tense. You know, St. Paul does this from time to time, speaking of things in the future, but in the past tense. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified is to be in a sinless, perfected state in the new heavens and the new earth where you are reflecting and shining forth the perfect glory of God himself. Let me take a look. I don't see a lot of glory coming off you. There's a little. That Paul speaks of your future day in the past tense. That Mary speaks of these future blessings in the past tense. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, they are absolutely certain. So certain for you, we can speak as if they had already happened. Because God is a God who sees, he's a God who acts, and finally, he is a God who remembers remembers his promises. Mary says this in verse 54 and 55. He, that is God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring 
forever. God had spoken to the fathers. God had made promises. God had made covenants throughout the history of Israel. Time after time, all of the prophecies, all of the covenants, all of the promises of God, even the very first one, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where Adam and Eve have rebelled against God and believed the lie of Satan, the serpent, and yet God speaks to the serpent, to Satan, a curse, which is a promise to humanity, and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. And there is the first shadowy glimpse of the cross of Jesus Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where it speaks of one who is the offspring of a woman who crushes the head of the serpent, who destroys evil, but in the process receives a fatal blow, a venomous strike. That's the promise that's given to Adam and Eve, that is given to their son Seth, all the way down Seth's line to a man named Noah and his family and his family and not just his family, but that promise was saved in the ark through the flood. And from Noah's family down the line to a man named Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob and to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Jacob of Israel, to the tribe of Judah specifically, to the Jewish people and to the coming of Jesse and then King David and King Solomon and all the way down the line to a man named Joseph. And Joseph, of course, Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that the whole Roman world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And each went to their home town to be registered. And so David went to the little town of Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David. And all of that is connecting us to the great promise that we have all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that is given again and again and prophesied throughout all of the Old Testament. And how many years have passed since the ending and the closing of the Old Testament canon How many years have passed since the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? Over 400 years. 400 years, it's called the years of silence. No new prophecies, no more prophets, no more books of the Bible being written. The people of God, the Israelites, Palestine is now a geopolitical football being kicked around by all the various empires and armies, Alexander the Great and the Macedonian Empire and Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire. And the people of God, the Jewish people, have become fractured into all these different groups. You've got the Sadducees and the high priests over here, and they're very politically motivated people and sort of connected that way. You finally have a Jewish king named King Herod, but he's just a political pawn of the Roman Empire. You have a group called the Pharisees. They start off pretty good, wanting to protect the law of God and God's word, but then they become so legalistic and holier than thou, and they've forgotten the grace and mercy of God. But then you have that small group of faithful people waiting and waiting the temple destroyed by the Babylons the glory of God departing the temple rebuilt but a pathetic small version they waited and they waited and they waited 
400 years waiting until the angel appeared to this 13, 14 year old named Mary in remembrance of his mercy God don't miss this God keeps his promises. Not in your timing. And in ways that are so unexpected. A baby? The Lord keeps his promises. And he is faithful and he is true. And so these are the things that Mary is gazing upon not all her worries and fears and all the, oh, so many fears she must have had, but her soul was magnifying the Lord and she was turning her eyes to the things of God. And as God was being magnified, her fears were being reduced. And one final thing as we close, I think maybe the most important thing here, very in terms of just practicality for you, for us, the very first three words in verse 46 says, and Mary said. She said. She spoke. She sang. We might get a thought about, you might hear a sermon, oh, that's an interesting thought. You might read the Bible and have a thought, and it goes in your mind, and it goes out. Mary said. She spoke it out loud. She sang. God has given us his words. You know, in these nine verses, there is about 20 different references to the Old Testament in just nine verses. Mary paid attention in confirmation <laughs> is the point. Pastor Nate likes that. She didn't summon this all up from the emptiness of her soul. No, she had filled her soul with the word of God and is now speaking the word of God back to him. How beautiful. Oh, there's power. There is power as we speak, as we sing, write, inscribe, whatever it is. As we join with our dear sister Mary, who we get to meet one day. And by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit's power, may our souls magnify not all these lesser things, but to magnify the Lord. To him alone be all the glory. Amen.